the radical left, the Marxists, the anarchists, the agitators, the looters, and people who, in many instances, have absolutely no clue what they are doing. Welcome to What Radicalized You, a podcast of stories and experiences that have shaped people's ideas about our world and the way society should function. My name is Patrick Nicholas McGuire, and I was born in July of 1980, Steubenville, Ohio, the Steel Valley. When I was young, my father was a steel worker. He's an iron worker in the Ohio Valley, and most of my family follows that job. My parents split up when I was five, 1985. My mom moved us to Florida. I was raised by a single mother here in Tampa, Florida, basically. It's where I reside now, and my father's still in the valley. He's still in the Steel Valley. Both of my parents were relatively open about marijuana. But cannabis was a very uh, early thing for me. I kind of uh, was around 14, 15 years old. I want to say the spring of 95. And honestly, I'm going to have to say that's probably what started making me think differently about stuff. I don't know if that's the case or not, but it definitely led me to a publication called High Times when I was 17 years old, and this would be about 1997. And high school, I started reading the High Times magazine, and I started to realize just because of my use of cannabis, how non-lethal it was, and, and what were these people talking about with the propaganda of it. So I think that's kind of what led me to start questioning a lot of stuff. This started opening me up to ideas like the disproportionate rates that people of color were getting in trouble for and, and how it made people into second-class citizens. I've been very open about cannabis my whole adult life to my employers, to my friends, to my family, to anybody that was around me because I wanted to open this up to people. I wanted to normalize it. So this is where my activism came in. I started becoming a legalized activist at 17, 18 years old. And that's what started opening me up because I'm gonna say this, I was born in the Valley and now when I look at it, the, the Ohio Valley, the Steel Valley, it's a very regressive place. There's heavy patriarchy, there's heavy stratification, there's heavy racism. These are things that were very kind of ingrained in me coming up, I'm not gonna lie. I break out of it around 18, 19 years old, and around 2001, I found a song called Drug Dealing God. It was a song by a group called Corporate Avenger, and it featured a group called the Cottonmouth Kings. The vitriol in their lyrics, things that they were bringing up, they got banned immediately when, the, when their first album got major shelving. That's where my real radicalization started coming into play. So Corporate Avenger, I found them from downloading music. I was looking for new stuff. I was looking specifically for cannabis songs. Like I wanted to make as many CDs as I could just to smoke weed to. And I found this song called Drug Dealing God. And Drug Dealing God talks about God being wanted by the U.S. government for the cultivation of marijuana on the planet Earth. Their songs are very, they're very edgy. And mind you, this came out in 2001 and it was super ahead of its time. 
there's a lot of things like uh, taxes or stealing, which is kind of a libertarian point of view, you know? Christians murdered Indians. The Bible is bullshit. These guys are Native American. The lead singer is um, from the Dakotas. He talks about basically how Columbus came over, created the genocide, America continued it, and this is what busted open my radicalization. In congression with this timeline, around 2003, the same time, I also found Alan Watts. Alan Watts, I found him listening to WMNF, which is my local public radio station. And they had a half hour every Wednesday at 11 o'clock. They had a half hour of Alan Watts each week. And at first it was a friend of mine that started turning on public radio. I was like, what is this? I don't want public radio. What you, this is boring, you know? What is this crap? Well, he started leaving the shop. He was production manager and he started getting out, but he would leave the radio running. And I found myself starting to really enjoy it. And Alan Watts would come on and I would listen to this guy. And it was about four or five weeks before I was like, who is this dude? So the next Wednesday, I, I got his name. I figured out what it was. And I went on the internet. Now, this is before uh, YouTube and everything, you guys. So this is, I went on the internet and looked up who Alan Watts was and I found his bio. And he died in 1973. Well, that blew my mind because I thought this dude was alive right now doing a half hour show every Wednesday at 11 o'clock because the things he would say and the things that he was talking about matched so heavily with what was going on at the time, which was Bush presidency and a John Kerry primary, all the elections for that cycle was coming around 2003, 2004. So everything he was talking about was hitting as if it was happening. So you have to imagine how blown my mind was when I looked on the internet and I seen 1973 was his death. I sat there for a good 10 minutes trying to like put together everything that I had known so far. And from that point forward, I was addicted to Alan Watts. If it weren't for Alan Watts, I think that Alex Jones probably would have dominated my young male, you know, undeveloped brain. Alex Jones had an interview with a man named Peter Joseph in 2008. I think it was in October. Peter Joseph was a guy that he was trying to demonize. He was trying to make him look like a Satan worshiper. He was trying to he was trying to, to discredit this man. And I, as an Alan Watts person, was looking very objectively at the situation and going, why is he trying so hard to discredit this guy? Well, I went and looked up Peter Joseph and I found his first documentary, The Zeitgeist. Peter Joseph opened up a whole new world of things to me. He opened up a man called uh, R. Buckminster Fuller and the Fuller Institute. He also opened up Jacques Fresco and the Venus Project. I was a research analyst. My client was actually the Healthcare Supply Chain Association in Washington, but they deal with a lot of supply chain companies. So I would create a newsletter for the HSCA. This was another step in the radicalization because this is when I found Bernie Sanders. I found him because he was railing against the pharmaceutical industry and I was asked to make it bad news for the CEOs of some of said companies. And I remember Bernie Sanders as I was doing the research for, um, for my company and I said, oh my God, man, he, he's a pretty cool dude. He's actually trying to help out. He's trying to make, you know, his integrity very lively. It's very important to me. I can see the consistency and I didn't hate him. I was like, what's he talking about? This led to a lot of getting into politics, period, because I was not as deep as I am into it today. Like, I follow local, I follow state, I follow federal, I get into it. When Bernie started touting it, the first thing that really got me, the first thing that made me go, hey, 
maybe this dude's onto something, is the prison industrial complex. The prison industrial complex is the topic that got me interested because I wanted to stop for-profit prisons because I wanted to stop people getting arrested for pot. And I wanted people to stop getting records that destroyed their lives for pot, you know? And he wanted to end the drug war. And, you know, this is going to sound kind of ridiculous, but any candidate that was going to put themselves out there and say, I will legalize marijuana, that's the candidate I wanted. I knew that was my that was my litmus test, as silly as it may be. You know, if they put, I want to legalize pot, then we worked up from there to see what else they had. That man gave so many details about the things that he wanted to do and is still working on. I don't think that he's ever going to stop. He's going to be a skeleton, a literal skeleton on the Senate floor. So Bernie starts dragging me to the left on my political compass. I was probably about a minus three, minus four area. So I was um, left libertarian already. My, I'm around the, you know, minus seven, minus eight uh, range now. And that a lot, that was brought on by Bernie, not because he's a radical communist, but because it really opened my eyes to the possibilities of what could be. And if I link together the information that I got from the Venus Project and the Zeitgeist, he is actually really, really far right to me. And I realized that on the political compass, I really can't even be gay. Like, they're still talking about societies with money. I'm talking about a society with no money. I want to see something where borders are lifted, money is non-existent, and in this case, all politics, all war, all poverty would also be lifted. They're not needed anymore. Things like militaries don't have to be disbanded. Hey, if you can drill it into their heads to kill, then you can drill it into their heads to be cultural envoys for your country and bring peace and what we're about to other countries without forcing it upon them. More like teachers or educators and other countries would do the same. Their militaries would be doing the same. Hey, this is what we're about. We just wanna show you what's going on with our life and what we do on this side of the world. And these things could be possible in a resource-based economy. I don't believe in utopias. I don't think it would be a utopia, but it would be what they call an emergent culture which means we would have time, we'd actually have the time to be creative. We wouldn't be burdened by things like, am I going to get the work on time? And how much did I make this week? And what the fuck are my bills going to be? And am I going to have enough money to put food on my table? Because I know I can't afford health insurance. The Venus Project specifically encompasses the idea of using all of our best technology and intertwining it with the environment and with humanity idea behind all of this is post-scarcity society. So the resource-based economy would create a post-scarcity society so that everyone gets what they need. There's no more fighting. There's no more competition. And I'll explain because one of my bosses in, in the sign company, that he explained to me, he's like, well, that just can't happen because, you know, when you put two babies in a room, two hungry babies in a room, and you set a bottle of milk in there with them, he's like, more than likely, one's going to get clubbed with the bottle of milk. You know, he's going to get the bottle for himself and he's not going to share because they're hungry and it's food. And I said, yes, you're right. But we're designed to think that that's how things are. There is actually no scarcity. We till under most of our crops to keep the prices of food up. They throw away 40% of the fast food that they make in these companies where people could be fed with. There's ways that if the world was properly managed and the resource-based economy could come to fruition and it would take the entire world, they would take the entire world to participate. Everybody could live at a higher standard of living 
than Jeff Bezos does today. And that's because we would be free from these ideas that we have to hoard. We hoard wealth. We hoard things that we claim ownership of. We have a house so we could put stuff and we don't even really stay in the house because we're at work all the time. It's just a place to store things that you're hoarding ownership of. In a resource-based economy, there's a central building in the middle of the circular city. The central unit would have an AI of its own and it would connect to all the other AIs of all the other cities. And then there would be a massive central AI that would respond to us as humans through a wristwatch, a contact lens, a phone, something technology-wise that's coming. We'll be able to contact with us constantly and we won't be judged based on our success and wealth and, and hoarding. We will be judged based on our contribution and ideas to society as well as our sustainability. The hoarding is not a thing and that anything you need can be accessed from the resource center, can be built by a 3D printer, or can be ordered food-wise or whatever from any automated service that will be helping us as humans at the time. So your house isn't gonna be something you're storing things in. You wouldn't have to have a massive place unless you wanted a massive place, unless you liked wide open stuff. This is only my interpretations from the information that I gathered. This is my vision of what I think the future would be on the Venus Project road of fame. This all leads back to the idea of our environment and our public health and how great it could actually be if the pressures of today's world weren't upon us. Like if right now, if I could just talk and think like I am without the pressures of work, without the pressures of bills, without worrying if my cars, which is broke down right now, won't make it to work. My ultimate vision is that we don't need a tragedy to switch over to this emergent culture. We don't need violence. We could do it if we just wanted to do it. And really, what would it take? It would take about a general strike. It would take a general strike of about a week and people demanding that we switch to this and that we use our technology for the betterment of all humankind because then what good is it for if we're not? You know, why are we even doing this if it's only going to benefit the, the mega rich? I mean, you know right now that the people that are up there, their houses, there's people that have fully automated houses. And then there's people that are still living in beat down trailers. We could all have those fully automated houses. We could all have the life that the 1% have probably better. The thing is, is they like the stratification because in what this meritocracy thing they talk about, it makes them feel like they achieved something in this life. Alan Watts specifically said that this is all a play and we're all wearing masks and we have no idea what the hell we're doing. We're all pretending. I would rather pretend to help my neighbor than pretend to be rich and famous. The Venus Project offers a new socioeconomic system that isn't capitalism, socialism, communism, nor fascism. It's nothing like anything that has ever been tried before. It's not a dictatorship, nor is it democratic. Yet it will achieve what all democracies have always tried to and never did. Genuine freedom from violence, abuse, coercion, 
and restrictions that are unnecessary and only serve a small minority at the expense of the rest. It is a system that works for all of us and the environment we depend on. It seems that society today is unable to provide many people with a high standard of living, although it has been technically possible to do so for quite a while. There are countless technical solutions that have been around for dozens of decades for housing, transportation, creating clean renewable energy, growing nutritious food, and providing fresh clean water. But very little has been done to put them into practice due to the insufficiencies of the social structure we live in today. The Venus Project offers a system that would invite those technologies in, shorten the workday, and raise the standard of living higher than what most people realize possible today.